good to be family together, isn't it? I suspect Amy's staying in today to hear her dad. Is that right? You're not? Are you going at the back or are you staying in here? What's the plan? Has it not come around yet? Have you been missed? You were chatting. That's unlike my wife. There you go. <laughs> That's my girl. I love you. Have fun. She's a nice teacher. I think you've met her before. Okay, we're now continuing in our series through Ruth. It's a brief series, a little interlude before we move on to something else. We've had a couple of weeks off, an interlude within the interlude, where Derek Bingham and Tom Shaw served us so well over the past couple of weeks. But if you remember, about a month ago we started off with John introducing the book of Ruth. He gave us an overview. He did it very well. Good overview of Ruth. And then uh, read with uh, various people read through all four chapters so we could get an understanding of the big picture of Ruth's romantic story and got the God at work behind it. And then David talked to us about uh, specifically the characters of Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, and her father-in-law Elimelech, who didn't last very long into the story. But uh, again, David served us very well in that understanding who these people were and what we can learn from their lives. Now it's my turn to speak on Ruth herself, the woman herself our heroine. Just for a moment, I just want to have a little guess, guessing game. I want to guess what your ideal spouse would be. And if you're sitting next to them, please make sure you're looking at them. <laughs> not, not the person the other side or something. I, I reckon your ideal spouse would be someone who's, someone who's been married before and has been widowed. That's always a little tick box. That's quite handy to have. And I suspect your ideal spouse will be someone who's really poor. I'm on the right track here. Someone who's so poor they're homeless. How's that? Yeah? No? No? You sure? I think so. No, I think so. How about someone who comes from another country? Uh, someone whose other country has steeped in history of incest. It's always a good bonus, isn't it? No? Okay, I'm on the wrong track here. How about someone... We should always marry a Christian, shouldn't we? Always a good thing. But we wouldn't want a strong, mature Christian. We want a brand new convert, wouldn't we? As a spouse. That's right, isn't it? And how about this is a big bonus. The ideal spouse was someone who brings a bitter or depressed mother-in-law in tow. Wouldn't that be right? <laughs> I'm not looking at Gloria. That's right. Am I wrong? Because that is Ruth. That is Ruth. Why do we never think of Ruth like that? It's true, isn't it? But we never, ever think of her like that. It's because her character is so exemplary that it shines and sings far brighter than her history, her situation, and her circumstances. We're going to look at Ruth's character in a little while. It seriously is exemplary. She's an amazing woman. But then behind that, there's a far greater story of a God at work as well. That's why we don't think of her like that. Just to remind you of the story, uh, very, very briefly, it's in the time of Judges when literally says in the last, last few words of the book of Judges, says every man was doing what he wanted, basically. They were godless to, to, in many ways. And in that time, there was a famine in Israel and a man called Elimelech uprooted his wife and two sons to just the other side. If you can picture Israel, and you've got the Dead Sea, Moab, the country that they went to, is literally just the other side. It's what we now know as modern-day Jordan, pretty much. It's not very far, but there's no famine there. The famine was pretty specific to Israel itself. Uproots his family for good or wrong reasons, whatever reasons, they end up there. While they're there where the food is, Elimelech dies. The boys have grown up, got married to local girls. They've died too. 
Finally, the famine finishes, and then Naomi decides it's time to go back home. There's food back in my homeland. I'm going home. Says to her daughters-in-law, her widowed daughters-in-law, go back to your families, go back to your people. One, after a bit of discussion, one called Orpah, I'm going to call it Oprah, so I think it sounds better. In fact, Oprah Winfrey was supposed to be called Oprah, but they spilt it wrong on a birth certificate. So Oprah goes back to her people, back to her gods. Ruth, however, she says, no, I'm clinging to you, I'm sticking with you. And again, we're going to look at what she says. It's an amazing speech she gives. Ruth goes back with Naomi, back to Israel, and then the romantic story begins where she finds the man of her dreams and we realise how much God has been at work all the way through. But before we do, before we look specifically at Ruth as a woman... I just want us to look at the word providence. We've been using this word providence, which crops up time and time again as, as people talk about Ruth. I'm very aware that people here might not really know what that word means uh, in terms of a title for a form of Bible doctrine about what God, how God is at work in this world. But also, I think those of us that do know what that word means is always worth remembering, particularly in what's going on these days in our personal lives and in terms of our government at the moment and stuff like that. So let me explain it this way. The word providence boils down to this. God never needs a backup plan. God is never taken by surprise. Many people in this world have different beliefs about God's, if they believe in a God at all, God's involvement in the world around us. And they can be boiled down to just a few basic categories. There's one called deism, which completely separates God and creation. It says that God created everything and then stepped away and is not involved anymore. Or he's dead. That's called deism. Separates God and creation. You get what's called pantheism, or panentheism, they're both similar, which actually mixes the two up. and said either God is creation, or God is in creation. It's very much like Star Wars, the force be with you. The force is in everything, the force is at work, and it's because of the force that things happen. It's just this weird gelatinous, amoebic kind of thing. But it's very, very blurry. There's no specific understanding of any form of involvement other than just this weird stuff going on around us that we don't understand. That's called pantheism. You also get fate. People believe in fate, don't they? Well, it wasn't meant to be. Well, regardless of your bad decisions, a little bit further back in history there, but it wasn't meant to be. It's a good little excuse. But also, fate has become this kind of fairy tale figure. There's this weird fate with a cloak on who decides things for us, and we all have a destiny. But it also means that your role's been set, you have no choice, no involvement in your own life and the decisions you make, and things are just meant to be. Again, it's a very elusive, non-biblical way of looking at the world. And then, of course, you also get chance. Everything's an accident. Many people believe in evolution, and chance is the god of evolution. It says, I'm an accident. It says, you're an accident. You are not an accident. That's not what the Bible says. What the Bible says is this, that our god is a creator God who still cares and is still involved in the world and the universe that he has made and he has no backup plan. He is in charge. He hasn't lost control and he knows what's going on. So when it looks like a loss, it's a lost cause, it's not because it's a lost cause. It just looks like it from our perspective. God is not quickly coming up with a, a plan B or some other contingency plan. He had them one, to one side. He's not either handcuffed to our decisions Sometimes people can look at, I made a decision and now God's got to deal with it. In many ways, God knew what you were going to decide anyway. God's at charge and he's already in control. He cares and he sustains and he provides. Here comes the providence. But it goes beyond that. It's not just that he provides when a situation happens. It's that he has already been providing without you realising, ready for this moment. It happens at all levels. General providence 
talks about how he sustains the universe. If you look at, don't have to turn with me, but I'll read from uh, Hebrews verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 3. says, The Son, Christ, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. He upholds the universe. At any moment, moment he could choose not to, this would all be gone. Okay, that is providence. He's already at work in sustaining the universe and keeping things ticking. But also, within that, he's involved in the details. Psalm 104 tells us that he makes the grass to grow. The grass doesn't just grow because of physical formulae and equations and processes and reactions. He makes the grass to grow. He is actively involved in that because he's upholding the universe. The same Psalm 104 says that he provides food for the animals in season. The food doesn't just happen to be available for them. Matthew 5:45 tells us that he sends the rain. It doesn't just rain. And yes, there are scientific processes behind that, but he's actively involved in it. He sends the rain is the word that's used there. And in light of Thursday, Romans 13, verse 1 says that he puts governments in place. They don't just happen. There's a reason for our home parliament at the moment. We may never understand fully what it's about, but the Bible tells us those of us that believe the Bible is God's revelation, his word, it tells us that he puts governments in place. God is actively involved. And then he goes even more specifically into the lives of the people he loves. Romans 8, 28, the verse we all know very well, he says that he works together for the good of those that love him. He is actively involved in a good way. Sometimes we can see this huge great thorn in our way, this horrible, ugly barb. It's huge, it's ugly, it's painful. But then using the Bible and our understanding of the real God behind it all, we can take a big God-like step back and see a beautiful bed of roses. It's a cheesy picture, I know. But ultimately, that is what the Bible promises us. When we see difficult things in our lives, God is a good God and he is at work all the time. And that is his providence. Not just that he's providing in a situation when it happens and he hastily gets things together so that we have a means of leaning on him. He's already been at work all the way through. He's at work in our lives now, for stuff that's coming up in the future. That's what the Bible says. <coughs> so in Ruth's story, did God use the famine so that Naomi and her family might meet Ruth? Yes, he did. Did he cause the famine? <coughs> Sticky question. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. That's difficult. There are implications to that. I'd love to spend more time, and I'm not skipping it for the sake of it, in order to run away from it. That's a, that's a big question, because ultimately we look at recent calamities, we look at earthquakes, we look at tsunamis, we look at all sorts. It's a difficult one to take on board. But we have to understand that if we don't say he is ultimately behind all that, we have a handcuffed, weak God who is handcuffed to a failed creation. No, he's bigger than that. And he uses it all for his glorious purposes, for better things. I understand that it's difficult to take on board because people do die in these things. We understand that. We have to trust that God is... Bigger than that, and also, it's my favourite verse at the moment, Psalm 119.68 says that he is good and he does good. He is a good God. God is bigger than the devil, he's bigger than the demons, he is over this world and all in it. Satan is on a leash. God is not handcuffed to this. He's a good God and he's in charge. And so when we see this famine that God didn't just use, but he actually allowed, he was behind it all in order for one woman, Ruth, to be drawn into his son's bloodline we can start to understand a bit of a bigger picture here. I'm going to look at the reasons why he drew Ruth into his son's bloodline later on. 
But just quickly, turn with me to Psalm 105, just before we leave this to one side. Psalm 105. And we understand a bit more of God's reasoning for the famine. You see, this refers to the time of Joseph, some hundreds of years before Ruth. And during Joseph's story, and out of Joseph's story, God generated an amazing story for his people in Egypt and then freedom from Egypt into the land of Canaan, where Naomi first started off at the beginning of our story in Ruth. Here we find, in verse 16 of Psalm 105, This is referring to the specific story of Joseph and a famine. Verse 16 of Psalm 105 says, He called down famine on the land and destroyed all their supplies of food. He, God, called down famine on the land and destroyed all their supplies of food. And then the next verse, And he sent a man before them, Joseph, sold as a slave. God had already been at work and he knew exactly what he was doing. And then through the famine, Joseph comes to amazing status within the country. So I'm sure many of you are familiar with the story. As a result, God establishes his people in a specific place at a specific time for a specific purpose for an even greater, bigger picture. So when we sometimes look at the horrendous things that go on in this world, we have to understand there is a good, loving God behind it. And so God used a famine to draw Ruth into his son's bloodline. Why? I'm going to answer that later. First of all, let's look at her character because this is very, very important. Let's look at Ruth the woman. I'm afraid it's going to be a bit of a whistle-stop tour because there's so many verses that refer to her character. But starting in the first chapter, and understand this, as well as her character, this is a woman who's still young and she has already had to deal with infertility and widowhood in the first ten years of marriage. A woman who's dealing with that alone and then we find out what her character's like. She's an amazing, amazing woman. She's a woman of few words, to be honest. Some of the blokes think, oh, I know, quite like that. But when she does speak, wow. And we're going to read one of her speeches in a minute. First of all, what was her character like? She was steadfast. Look at verse 14 of chapter 1. This is after Naomi has said to her two daughters-in-law, all the men have died, and she says, go back to your people, I'm going back to mine. And in verse 14 it says, At this they wept again. Then Orpah, Oprah, kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. This same verb, clung, is exactly the same verb that's used in Genesis 2.24 when it talks about a man leaving his, leaving his parents and holding fast to his wife. This is a binding and exclusive act. Uh, the NRV says be united, the ESV says hold fast, and here the same verb has been uh, translated as cling, to cling. This declares, this is a promise that absolutely declares that future abandonment will not happen. I wish more people would take that on board when they make their wedding vows. I will not abandon you. I mean this. This is also the same verb, if you're taking notes, scribble this down. If you're, this is also the same verb that is in, mentioned in Deuteronomy 10 verse 20. Deuteronomy 10 20 which says, Fear the Lord your God and serve him, hold fast to him, and take your oaths in his name. Ruth is using the same kind of covenantal promise that God asks of his own people. Here is a foreigner, an ex-idolater, who has taken on board the faith that God expects of his own people. She's got it. She's a steadfast woman. And she meant it for life as well. 
as we look at this speech that comes up in the next few verses, from 15 verse to eight, uh, through to uh, 17. Is a big grandstanding speech. Every, I love movies, and every movie, the main character gets their big moment where they get to chew the scenery. This is Ruth's bit. Here she goes, chewing the scenery. She says, from verse 16 of the first chapter, But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. A massive promise. She has got the kind of dedication that God expects of his own people. She is someone who isn't a member of his own people. She gets it far more than his people seem to get at this time. She is faithful. In fact, those vows have actually been used in wedding ceremonies in vows before. It's amazing. So she's steadfast, she's faithful. I'm going to have to whistle through these, I'm aware of time actually. One more thing to note, she takes initiative. She's not some doormat. We've already seen here, she has, made, she has chosen to make this great promise to Naomi that I'm sticking by you whatever, I'm clinging to you. And then in the second verse of the second chapter, Ruth the Moabites said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain. She's asking. See, later on we find out she follows a lot of Naomi's advice and it almost seems like Ruth's a bit of a doormat, just doing what she's told. She is not. She's a woman who has her own mind and she takes initiative. So she's steadfast, she's faithful, she takes initiative. She's also humble and respectful. A few more verses later in the second chapter. Verse. Uh, let's look at verse 10 and 13. Verse 10... This is when she's gone to find Boaz in the field and she's asking for his favour. And this is how she speaks to him. At this, verse 10, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She exclaimed, why have I found such favour in your eyes that you notice me a foreigner? She bowed down to him. And then in verse 13, she continues, may I continue to find favour in your eyes, my Lord. She's calling Boaz my Lord and she bows down before him. This woman is remarkably humble and respectful as she asks him for his favour. Now the humility is kind of evident there in the language she uses, but it's even more evident when we realise that she has every right as a foreigner just to go to the field and take what's around the edge. Levitical law, you can read about it in Leviticus 19, Levitical law declares that if you own, own any crops in a field, you have to leave the edge for the poor, for the sojourners, the travelling foreigners just like Ruth. She had every right just to go and do that, but she doesn't. In absolute humility, she goes to Boaz and asks him, my Lord, she bows before him and asks for his favour. See, this world we live in is so much, right now, the Western world is so much about rights over responsibility, isn't it? My rights for this, my rights for that. It's the world we're living in, it's the world (coughs) our children are growing up in. Ruth didn't exercise that, even though she had that right. (coughs) Excuse me. The key is this, God's grace doesn't tell us we have no rights anymore. We still have rights and we are allowed to exercise them. But what God's grace tells us is that we don't need to fight and claw our way to survive in this world. Because there is a good God who is at work behind all things and we can trust in him. We can rely on him. Yes, we are allowed to exercise our rights, but we don't always have to. We don't have to fight to survive. This is not evolution, this is not survival of the fittest, if you get me. This is about trusting a good God 
who is on our side, who works together for the good of his people. And so even, even though Ruth had every opportunity to fight for her rights, she didn't, she asked for favour instead. And what was the result? She ended up in a better place than if she just exercised her rights. Because in verses 15 and 16, as she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. So she's now allowed to go wandering amongst the field and get the good crop. And then even better than that, he then says, rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. He gives her the good stuff. Because she didn't exercise her rights, she just asked favourably and trusted God. She ended up in a far better place than all the others. So she's steadfast, she's faithful, she takes initiative, she's respectful, she's humble, she's hard-working. Again, in verse 17, we find out that she works all the way through to the evening and then starts threshing the barley. I'd have been shattered by evening after all that. I'm not very good. After about an hour of gardening, I'm ready to go, go and watch a movie or something. Put my feet up. She works all the way through... Yeah, she's laughing. She works all the way through the evening and then starts threshing the barley on top. She's hard-working. Then we find out in verse 23 that she continues this through the harvest. She's patient. She made these promises to Naomi. She's willing to work hard to uphold her promise to look after Naomi. And she does it all the way through the season. <coughs> so then we see she's steadfast, she's faithful, she takes initiative, she's respectful, humble, hardworking, and patient. And this is because she's a woman who sticks by her word. Remember, she's already promised to cling to Naomi. To Naomi. But then remember what Naomi's like at the moment. Naomi's still grieving. I don't know how Ruth dealt with her grief of losing her husband. Sure, it wasn't easy, but there's no indication that she's struggling with it necessarily. Naomi clearly is, because when they return to Israel, everybody's pleased to see her. Naomi, how are you? She goes, don't call me Naomi, call me bitter. It's a bit, it's quite extreme. It's quite, this is a deep-seated emotional problem she's got, an eye on depression possibly. Imagine if I went away to, I don't know, New Zealand for 10 years. And then I came back, Steve, how are you? Don't call me Steve, call me down in the dumps. <laughs> You'd think there was something not quite right going on and I'm struggling with something, wouldn't you? Name is like this, and yet Ruth has promised to stick by her and she continues to live with her. We re re read that she lives with her and she's sticking by her. And I'm sure that can't have been easy. That can't have been easy. So she sticks by her word too. She's also teachable. When Naomi finds out that uh, Ruth has kind of caught Boaz's eye, so, so to speak, she gives her advice, quite detailed instructions of how to make it quite obvious to him that she's interested in him as a future marriage partner. And remember, Ruth takes initiative earlier on. So it's not just because she's a doormat, it's because she's teachable. And she takes Naomi's word to the letter and does everything that Naomi tells her to in order to make it quite clear to Boaz that she's interested in him. Just while we're on that... <coughs> Where do you get your advice from? I think this is a question always worth asking. Where do you get your advice from? Are you teachable? We'll put it this way. Do you go to people for advice who you think are going to tell you what you want to hear? It's always a big temptation. Or do you go to people for advice who tell you what you need to hear even if you're not going to like it? There's wisdom in that. It's, easy, it's easily avoidable, isn't it? Where do you get your advice from and are you teachable? One more thing, just going to need to move on. One more thing, she's also self-controlled. She follows Naomi's 
advice to the letter, I wouldn't say this was probably the best advice. For unmarried couples, don't go down and lie next to each other alone in a field at night. Okay, it's not a good thing. You're just sticking temptation right in your face, aren't you? But she follows Naomi's advice to go to him at night, uncover his feet and lie down beside him. She says, lie at his feet, I think is the word. I'm not quite sure if that means perpendicular or parallel or upside down. Or I'm not quite sure, top and tail. I don't, I don't know what. But either way, lies down next to him with his feet uncovered. I'm not entirely sure, again, about what uncovering his feet totally means, how much of his leg is revealed, etc., etc. But I suggest is also the fact that his cold feet will wake him up and he'll notice she's there. Okay? I'm sure that's a part to play in it. But ultimately, she lies down next to him, he wakes up and they have a good old chat and they don't take it any further. He clearly likes her, she clearly likes him. It's dangerous, they're skirting with temptation and any unmarried couples listening, don't, just don't. Not a good recommendation. But we can clearly see they are both remarkably self-controlled. They're clearly attracted to each other and they don't do anything about it other than agree to discuss it again later. She lies down there all night. She only gets up just before dawn. Remarkable self-control. And so all of this, her character traits have made quite an impact on Boaz. We're never told what she looks like. We picture her as this beautiful Middle Eastern woman. don't know. She might have had a wonky nose and three ears. I don't know. But we picture her as a beautiful woman because we are told what her character is like. There's her beauty. There's her beauty. Proverbs 31, it's a famous proverb that lists the AB, it's, it's in, in the original language, it's in the ABCs. It's the ABCs of womanly excellence. And it can be quite daunting for a lot of women because it lists this ideal woman that is unachievable. How can I ever be like that? The point of Proverbs 31 is it's an ideal and it's looking at all aspects of womanly excellence. It's not just one woman because she'd never, the thing she does in that chapter, she'd, she'd never sleep. Maggie Thatcher on steroids, do you know what I mean? She'd never need any sleep. <laughs> but we understand, you, you understand Proverbs 31 is an ideal. But then we look at Ruth with all these amazing character traits. So listen to them again quickly. Steadfast, faithful, takes initiative, she's respectful, humble, hardworking, patient, sticks by her word, teachable, self-controlled, and also elsewhere we find out she's really kind. She demonstrates amazing kindness as well. And then we see this woman and we think, almost oh she's an ideal as well. She's an amazing role model. Is that an unattainable role model? No, because she was real. She was a human being who was recorded in history as being like this. She's a real woman. It's not unattainable. So please take heart. It is possible with God's help. This is a woman who committed herself to Naomi's God. She took it seriously. And the amazing side effect of that was her character that came out. It's a challenge for us all, not just the women, for the men as well, I hope. And so, as the woman Ruth, and then we come to the amazing, great, romantic climax. They finally get it together after a lengthy cultural process. They get it together, they marry, the people give them an audacious prophecy. They're prophesying to a woman who hasn't borne any children in a previous marriage, saying, you're going to have a kid. It's quite a bold prophecy. But then it happens. It says they come together and she got pregnant. Bam, like that. Boaz is quite potent, I think. It's amazing. And so... It's true. It's true. Sniper. <laughs> but understand this. There's an amazing story because out of that son is Obed, who is the grandson of 
King David, amazing character in the Old Testament, who is ultimately the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus Christ. We can now understand the bigger picture that God is up to here. He's drawn Ruth specifically into his son's bloodline for a reason. Why? I'm still not going to tell you, because I'm going to tell you one more thing. Remember where she's come from. She's come from the land of Moab. Moab, the father of Moab, is a guy called Moab. That's where they get the name from. He was born out of incest. Lot, Abraham's nephew, had sex with his daughter, and they had Moab. And Moab was the father of this nation, Moab, where Ruth came from. They worshipped a god called Chemosh. We believe that included human sacrifice. So when, when Naomi is telling Ruth and Oprah to go back to their gods, she's not just saying go back to that funny little statue you've got on top of the telly. She's saying go back to that hideous culture you've come from. This is, this, is, this is who the Moabites are. The Moabites aren't actually specifically forbidden by God in marriage to his people. He names the Canaanites and the people who live in that land in Deuteronomy. But the Moabites are specifically banned from becoming members of the worshipping congregation. Deuteronomy 23, verse 3. He specifically says the Moabites aren't allowed into the worshipping congregation. And yet here is a woman from that background, from those people, with that, with that blood in, flowing in her veins. He has called her, in fact he's used a famine to get Ruth into his son's bloodline. What's going on? She's even called throughout the book of Ruth. Seven times she's called Ruth the Moabite. She's not even, the narrator is trying to remind us of where she's coming from for a reason. She's not just Ruth, she's Ruth the Moabite. You see, Israel didn't just have a position of privilege. Israel had a position of mission. Do you remember we were going through our purpose statement last year, which is living life by his spirit, on his mission for his glory. And when we're looking on his mission, Jim Ransom reminded us of the promise to Abraham that through Abraham, God will raise up a people, a nation, who will bless all the nations. You see, Israel wasn't just in a position of privilege just for their own sake. God was saving them for a purpose of saving the nations around them as well. And yet here, we find out that Ruth, a foreigner, is drawn into his people as one of his own to become part of his son's bloodline. Why? I'll say significantly, not just completely, but significantly for this reason. So foreign blood flowed through Christ's veins. He wasn't a pure Jew. He was a long way back, but he wasn't a pure Jew. You look through the genealogy in Matthew, there are two non-Jew women are joining. There's Rahab, but there's also Ruth. Foreign blood flowed through Jesus' veins. Why? So he's not just for the nations, he is also literally from the nations. The blood that flowed on the cross wasn't just pure Jewish blood. From the nations, for the nations. In fact, Revelation 5 verse 9 says, by his blood he ransomed people from every nation. Not just symbolically, but literally, by his foreign blood that flowed in him. There was some of that in him. You see, the overall earthly goal of Ruth's story, Naomi's intentions, you see it twice, 1 verse 9 and 3 verse 1, Naomi's intention for Ruth is to provide her a home. That's what Naomi wants for her. And that's the intention, literally, superficially, for Ruth's story, is to find her a home. The overall heavenly goal of Ruth's story is to bring humanity home to the Father 
through his son, from the nations, for the nations. This story is about life from death. The Bible is very real and very honest, and some of us are suffering right now. I know that. And God doesn't sweep that under the carpet. God proves that he is with us in the pain and he is always at work. Always at work. Beforehand, during and after. See, God the Father in his providence brought life out of famine. He brought life out of infertility. He brought life out of death. And he does it the same for us and he's still doing it for us right now. What happened to Ruth has and does happen to us as God's people today. Turn with me the last time to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 to 13. Ruth was a foreigner, not part of God's people, but she was drawn into God's people by his grace and for a great purpose. And then we get to read this amazing few verses in light of that. Are you ready? Verse 11 of chapter 2. In Ephesians, therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles, non-Jews by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. Ruth's story is our story. What happened to Ruth happened to us. And it's because there was a good God behind the scenes in what initially seemed an awful situation. We have been rescued from dead beliefs. We've been rescued from dead works. We've been rescued from death itself, ultimately into life itself, for those of us who trust in Christ as the only means to the Father. Just like Ruth, we have been redeemed. We're going to be hearing a bit more about the word redeemed next week, I trust. We have been rescued, freed, delivered and saved. So if there's one point you take away this week, it's this. Ruth's character may have been exemplary, but Ruth's character did not get her into the kingdom of God. Her amazing character did not crowbar her into God's favour. No matter how exemplary you, are, exemplary you are, no matter how much a man or a woman of integrity you are, like Ruth, that will not save you. The things you do will not save you. The things you avoid, for good reasons or whatever, will not save you. It is only by his grace, his undeserved favour. Only God's providence does that. As much as Ruth's amazing big movie speech back then, where you go, I will go, and where you die, I will die. See, that wasn't just her making promises to a woman because she loved Naomi. It's far deeper than that. It's because she understood what it meant to cling to God. What God expected of his people, hold fast to me. Ruth got that. And her character was an amazing byproduct of that heart and of that attitude. Character is not a means to being right before God. Character is a byproduct of God at work in us. But it is by God's grace that we are saved. 
God drew her in by a famine. He laid on something quite audacious to get her in. Why her? Again, it's his grace as opposed to anyone else. don't know. That was his choice. But he used a famine to draw Ruth into his son's bloodline so that his son's blood might save all the nations. He drew her in, he called her, he saved her. And he is or has already called you too. If you don't know him right now, he's calling you now. If you don't know Jesus as the living Son of God who died 2,000 years ago, who rose again 2,000 years ago, because only he can bridge the gap between man and God. God is so perfect, he is so far removed from us and vice versa. And nothing can bridge that gap other than God and man, fully God and fully man in one form, Jesus Christ, who had foreign blood from the nations flowing through his veins that shed on the cross for the nations that men might be reconciled to the good God behind the scenes. Trust in him. If you don't know him, trust in him. If you do know him, don't forget, trust in him. There's a good God behind the scenes. He's always good. He's at work, he's in charge, and he loves us. Let's just pray. Father, so often we see the world through our own eyes and we forget to look at it through yours. The things we personally struggle with, when we look at our bank statements, when we look at things on the telly, when we speak to family on the phone, whatever it is, Lord Jesus, we struggle with things and so often we forget that you're bigger than that, that you're in charge and that you are good. Lord, teach us to trust in your sovereignty in the reality of your goodness. Lord, we thank you that you are already at work in our lives. You were at work in my family's life before I, was even, before I even came on the scene. You were working things together for my good in Ruth's time, that I might be saved. And that's real for all of us here. Lord, We just want to trust you once again. The things we're finding hard, we give back to you and say, Lord, you are real, you are honest. You know what we're going through. You're not asking us just to push them to one side. You're asking us to ask for your help in finding hope within those situations. Lord, we love you. And Lord, may we just demonstrate some more of that hope in our lives so that others might know you that they might recognise there's something we have, a steadfastness in our lives that is unexplainable other than it's all about you. Lord, we love you, we trust you. Keep reminding us of this during this week. And Lord, we just recognise that you're a good God and you're in charge. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. If you want any prayer for anything, feel free to... Come up here, some of us will be at the front for a while. If not, cell notes will be online with the audio later on today, hopefully, or tomorrow. If you haven't got any access online, then find someone to print it off for you, they can do it for you. Coffees and teas are out the back. Stay and be family. Cheers, guys. <laughs>